For more than 40 years, people across the world have waited with anticipation to read the latest report, commentary, or book from Thomas Friedman. From London to Beirut to Jerusalem to best-selling books and famed New York Times columns, few American correspondents have ever reached Tom Friedman's level of prominence and prestige. With Iran racing forward with its nuclear program, Lebanon melting down, U.S.-Saudi relations in limbo, and support for Israel a persistent topic of debate, we welcome Tom Friedman to the podcast to help us sort it all out. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, how was your Hanukkah? My Hanukkah was great, Rich. And But before we get to Hanukkah and our guest, I want to give a special shout out to my longtime boss and mentor, Mike Bloomberg, for giving an amazing speech at the UJA in New York, calling out anti-Semitism from both the left and the right, something we've done on the show a lot. And uh, Kohaka vote to, to Mayor Mike for, for making that speech when we need it the most. I retweeted him. I thought it was a wonderful speech, uh, excellent message uh, for all sides to hear, one that we, I think, have carried here on the podcast. And maybe one day uh, we will have Mayor Bloomberg uh, here uh, on the podcast, uh, Jared. So I'll, 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 make, I'll, I'll make the invitation. I'll make the invitation. Anyways, Hanukkah was great. We had a lot of fun. I, I saw photos of yours as well. You looked like you guys had some fun as well. But Rich, let's get to our guest, Thomas Friedman is an internationally renowned author, reporter, and columnist, the recipient of three Pulitzer Prizes, and the author of seven best-selling books, among them, From Beirut to Jerusalem, The World is Flat. Thomas Friedman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, uh, Richard. It's good to be with you guys. So let's start with St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Prominent Minnesotans appear to be having a moment in American foreign policy. Tom Nides is the new ambassador to Israel. Jake Sullivan is the national security advisor. Dennis McDonough is the secretary of veterans affairs. And of course, you are the chronicler of the Middle East, among other pressing foreign policy matters. So the question we all had, what's with the water in Minnesota that you where you and all these individuals were growing up? Uh, yeah, I told this story in my last book. Uh, thank you for being late. Basically, um, you know, in Minneapolis, uh, the Jews um, uh, all really, you know, as after immigration, all settled, basically, virtually all settled in the north side of the city with uh, the black community. And in fact, it was kind of a Jewish black ghetto, the north side. I was born probably three miles from where George Floyd was killed. Um, uh, after World War II, um, the Jews were able to escape. The blacks couldn't, um, too many housing restrictions. The Jews wasn't so easy to escape because there are a lot of housing restrictions against Hebrews in some of the surrounding suburbs. But there was one suburb called St. Louis Park that had enough housing and didn't have housing covenants. And so basically in a period of about three or four years, an entire Jewish community moved from the north side of the city to one suburb called St. Louis Park, a suburb that had been 100% Swedish, 99% Swedish, German, Scandinavian, and Catholic, became overnight basically 20% Jewish and 80% you know, Scandinavian and uh, German and Protestant Catholic. If Sweden and Israel had a baby, it would have been St. Louis Park. And um, uh, it's probably a very tasty meatball. That's too. right, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, out of that mix um, emerged uh, an incredible creative explosion. So I went to Hebrew school, a high school, or lived in the same basic neighborhood with Al Franken, Norm Ornstein, Michael Sandel from Harvard. Peggy Ornstein, the writer, Sharon Isbin, the guitarist, 
uh, the Cone Brothers. Oh, wow. Um, uh, we all the Cone Brothers movie, A Serious Man, was about St. Louis Park. Right. So um, we all, um, the Cohn brothers compared it to that town in Transylvania where all the Draculas came from. And um, uh, it was just a, a, a sort of post-war, it's like the Jews were kind of shot out of a cannon and unleashed. And we were fortunate to live in this really pluralistic environment with all these Swedes. And um, we really appreciated their pluralism. They appreciated our neurotic obsession with education. And out of it came a really interesting synthesis. And we actually found this incredible 1986 profile of you in the L.A. Times of then 32-year-old Tom Friedman. <laughs> uh, you, you grew up, as you talk about in this Jewish household, this Jewish neighborhood. You went on family trips to Israel, lived on a kibbutz, speaking fluent Hebrew. Talk to us about the role Judaism Israel played during your childhood. Didn't speak fluent Hebrew, but I, I, uh, in Minneapolis, you know, we all grew up, all of us, at St. Louis Park, went to the St. Louis Park Talmud Torah. And this will be hard to, for your kids to believe. But Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you walked out of elementary school to the Hebrew bus that was waiting and took you to Hebrew school four nights a week, four, count them, one, two, three, four nights a week and Sunday morning for five years till your bar mitzvah. So um, I grew up in, in that kind of conservative Jewish environment. And, um, but what really had the biggest impact on me, there's a very vibrant summer Jewish uh, camp in, in the uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin area called Herzl Camp in Webster, Wisconsin, where Bob Dylan also went. And it was, um, it was a Zionist summer camp. And we enacted, you know, um, the Dreyfus trial every summer. I got to be the French officer who once ripped off Dreyfus Elipitz and, and um, broke his sword. But um, it really uh, instilled a, a strong affection and identity with Israel in me before I ever went there. It really started there. because I went to, I basically went to Herzl camp for five years, took a year off and then lived on kibbutz for three years. And so there was a kind of continuum there um, that was very much part of my education. So this nice Jewish boy from Minnesota is covering war in Beirut and getting bombed by the PLO, winning <laughs> Pulitzers along the way. Your family must have been worried sick about you. My dad, unfortunately, passed away um, uh, when I was 19. But my mom, God bless her, now that I'm a parent and even a grandparent now, I, I don't know how she did it. My mom, when she was uh, about 64, actually came and visited my wife and I in Beirut, too. Wow. So I, I always, um, uh, basically, first I got interested in the Middle East through going to Israel, living on kibbutz. Uh, did my sophomore year abroad at the Hebrew University. And then I did my junior, I uh, did a semester abroad at the American University in Cairo um, and got interested in the Arab world and then started taking Arabic as a freshman at the University of Minnesota and, uh, and then eventually got my graduate degree in Arabic and Middle East history from Oxford and had a sort of classic British Arabist education, got to study with one of the great Arab historians, Albert Hurani. And I really was interested and wanted to cover the Arab world. And it was not easy because at that time, the New York Times wouldn't send a Jew to Israel, let alone a Jew to the Arab world. And But fortunately, I was hired by UPI in London on Fleet Street, which is where I got my start. And they dared to send me to Beirut. And so I had this, they launched me on what was a, just such a privileged and interesting career. I'm, I'm the only person probably who, who covered the Arab world first and then went to Israel. You know, um, and I didn't just cover the Arab world. I covered the War of '82, Sabrina Jatila, uh, uh, you know, the bombing of the American Embassy, and, and all of that. And so it's been a, it's been an amazing ride. So, Tom, you just mentioned it a minute ago, and this was a fascinating story to Rich and I. Uh, you were the first Jewish correspondent in Israel for the New York Times, something that had been taboo before then. What changed? Yeah. Well, I think I was part of the change. You know, um, they they when I was hired, I mean, Abe Rosenthal literally said to me. 
So I, but basically, I, I worked in London. Uh, I was hired on Fleet Street in 1978, um, uh, and in 1979, the number two man in the Beirut Bureau of UPI got shot in the ear by a man robbing a jewelry store on Hamra Street. And they came to me and said, "Would you like to go to Beirut?" Middle of the Civil War, and of course, I jumped at it. And uh, this was 1979. That would be very important. Um, 1979, you know, there are vintage years in history, just like there are vintage wines. Well, the first two stories I cover are the Iranian Revolution and the takeover of the Grand Mosque in Mecca in Saudi Arabia. Little do I know that those two stories will shape the region and really my whole career for the next 40 years. And I was there for two years with UPI and then the New York Times hired me and they wanted to eventually send me back to the Middle East. But I had to persuade Abe Rosenthal, who was then executive editor, who literally said to me, how do I send a Jew to Beirut? I said, well, the good news is I've already done it because UPI had done that. So they did that. And then, you know, uh, it, it went well for them. And then they wanted to send me to Israel. They thought they had broken the rule, the taboo on not sending Jews to Israel when they sent David Shipler, my predecessor. But it turned out David just looked Jewish, but he wasn't <laughs> Jewish. So um, uh, when they got to me, they uh, didn't take any chances. They, they, they wanted to get over this. And, and um, I was a good person to do it was because I'd actually started in the Arab world. Um, uh, and, and came to Israel from there. You know, one of our last uh, guests on the podcast, John Shanzer, has got a new book out on the Gaza conflict from earlier this year, and he talks a lot about foreign correspondence. And I'm sure you've you've become a mentor, I'm sure, to many over the years uh, who come and say, you know, how should I how should I cover the conflict? How should I cover you know Israel? Um, one of the disconnects I think we saw was. One of the, you know, the famous part of the of the conflict when the IDF had tweeted something, you know, that alluded to them invading Gaza, maybe, and then breaking news reports from all the foreign correspondents. The IDF has invaded Gaza, and they all have to issue retractions. The Israeli media never actually reported that. They had sources in the PMO and in the IDF embedded, and they said, "Yeah, we don't we don't see any invasion." What would you be advising if you're mentoring foreign correspondents in Israel right now? How should they be covering things? What do you tell people of like sources and methods and all that of how to be a good foreign correspondent? Well, that's a long lesson, uh, Rich, but uh, I'll just give you a couple highlights. It's a perfectly valid question. You know, my views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, have actually never changed. Um, even though people like to search through my past and find something I said when I was at Brandeis, uh, you know, whatever, to think they thought, it, it, you know, I believe in a two-state solution. Um, I believe it's the only way. And if you're for a two-state solution, you're my friend. If you're not, you're my opponent. And so that, that's sort of my core belief. But when it comes to Israel, I really believe that to be, to effectively think about Israel, whether you're a foreign correspondent or whether you're just a citizen of the world, I believe you have to be able to hold three thoughts together in your head at the same time, which I am perfectly capable of doing, but a lot of people are not. And those three thoughts are, Israel's an amazing place. Israel's an amazing place. When you look at what has been built there in a hundred years, the, the medicine, the science, the literature, the ingathering of refugees, the society, um, Israel's an amazing place, number one. Number two, Israel does bad stuff sometimes. Israel does bad stuff sometimes, particularly in the West Bank. And number three, Israel lives in a crazy, dangerous neighborhood. Now, I have no problem holding all three of those thoughts together in my head at the same time. Unfortunately, a lot of people want to just say, Israel's amazing. It's amazing, 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 amazing. Israel does bad stuff. That's all they do is bad stuff. 
It lives in a crazy neighborhood. Leave them. No, actually, all three are true at the same time. And if you don't have a mind that can hold three thoughts together at the same time, don't be a journalist. Be an ophthalmologist. You won't have any problem there, okay? Um, but, um, uh, you know, that's my number one rule. And my second rule is um, uh, cover Israel as a country, not a conflict. If you just come to Israel and cover it as a conflict, well, you, you, you may get locked in that thing of Israel does bad stuff. If you cover it as a country, it's an amazing country. And by the way, you'll understand the conflict better if you cover it first as a country, a really dynamic, rich, diverse society. And so um, my third rule is this. Um, people always ask me, or they'll say, you're not objective. How can you be objective? Jewish kid from Minnesota. Well, it, it, that comes from, I think, a real failure to understand what is objectivity. So but most people think objectivity is equal to ignorance. So if we want a really fair correspondent in Israel, let's take a Gentile from Montana and plunk him down in Jerusalem, make him the bureau chief. He doesn't know anything, okay? that That's actually not objectivity. Objectivity is a tension. It's a constant tension between two things. Um, uh, uh, basically, um, intra, you know, empathy almost, and disinterest. I can't possibly write a fair column about Rich and Jared if I don't really get inside you um, uh, and, and almost see the world through your eyes. But I also can't write a fair story if I only see the world through your eyes. And so objectivity is a tension between those two things, a, a, almost an a, empathetic and a disinterest. And there are times when I might be a little more empathetic to you than the other side. There are times I may be more disinterested to you than the other side. But what I tell everyone is I'm engaged in a dialogue here. I'm trying to unfold this story. You want to judge me? Do not judge me from one story. Judge me over a year. If you see a pattern over a year, then come to me. Let me know, okay? But I'm engaged in a, in a, in a constant dialogue and a constant tension between, you know, a certain kind of empathy and a certain disinterest. And so those would be my three pieces of advice. I love it. I, I, I feel like I'm back in journalism school. Yeah. And you, you're one of my favorite professors well, already. You. Uh, you, you just actually wrote a column last week that got a lot of attention. Trump's Iran policy has become a disaster for the U.S. and Israel. We want to unpack that a little bit. Uh, the headline and the top, I think, with Bogey alone got most of the attention. Um, but I actually think the lead for me was at the very, very end. Uh, where you say, quote, I'm watching that Israeli player. He has a really grim look on his face. He keeps counting his F-35 chips like he's thinking about going all in alone, and he is crazy enough to do it. But my question, do you believe the Israelis are actually prepared to attack Iran right now, or is this posturing to coax action by the Biden administration or by the Iranians during the talks? Yes. <laughs> uh, I think it's both. Um, I think they are literally... You know, as a good poker player, they're just sort of rolling their chips around. And at the same time, there are two audiences. One is the Biden administration and one is Iran. And they much prefer to do something with the Biden administration. They much prefer, you know, I don't just write these columns, obviously. I, these are reported columns, so I can't go into that. But um, basically, um, you know, what the Israeli army believes right now is that the way to avoid war in the Middle East would be to credibly threaten the Iranians. From the very beginning of these negotiations, Rich, I've always said the Iran deal, the first, the JCPOA, the Iran deal, was the best deal that money and covert Israeli action could buy. 
Okay, so that's what that deal. It's 15 years. That was if you're just going to do money that is imposing sanctions and covert action, that got you the JCPOA. Um, but one thing the Iranians knew is we weren't going to attack. They, they never believed that there was uh, a credible military threat. They believe that even less so today. That doesn't mean they're un under other economic pressure. These sanctions are really hurting. But they do not believe that Joe Biden would risk $10 gasoline for Christmas to take out Iran's nuclear reactor. I'm putting this very crudely, you know. And so... Um, Israel is arguing to them that the way you um, uh, actually avoid war is by credibly threatening the Iranians. And that's very hard because, as I said in that piece, you know, I, I've had this view of the Middle East that there's only two non-Arab tribes that have survived in the region, and they're the Kurds and the Jews. The Christians have really been pushed out. Um, and it's a tragedy because the Middle East, without the incredible contribution to culture and, and politics and, and economics of the Christians, is really a different region. Um, I speak not just about Lebanon, but Syria and Iraq uh, in particular. Um, but there's a reason the Kurds and the Jews are the only two local tribes to survive in a basically Arab Muslim region. And that's because they play by the local rules. And the local rules are no rules at all. So you cannot out-crazy them. Because um, at the end of the day, Israelis will do whatever it takes. You cannot out-crazy them. Now, out-crazy is a very important strategic verb in that part of the world. Because the Iranians always think that they can out-crazy you. One thing they know, they can't out-crazy the Iranians. Hezbollah learned that in 2006. Okay, And so did Hamas, basically. Uh, they can't out-crazy the Israelis. Um, Trump's greatest advantage as a president was he's the first president we've had in a long time who played, who did crazy really well. <laughs> um, but but um, but uh, but Trump um, wasted his craziness by never retaliating to the attack on Saudi Arabia. So when the Iranians saw that, they thought, okay, that's uh, that guy's done. Okay, and and Biden just doesn't do crazy really well. It's just he just doesn't do crazy. I guess my follow up would be. It, this column came about a year, almost exactly a year after another yeah. attention-grabbing column you had right right after the president was elected. Uh, it was so attention-grabbing that he apparently called you to give an interview as, as sort of a response. The headline was, Dear Joe, it's not about Iran's nukes anymore. Uh, I'll just quote for our readers real yeah. quick. If Biden tries to resume the Iran nuclear deal as it was and gives up the leverage of extreme economic sanctions on Iran before reaching some understanding on its exporting of precision-guided missiles, I suspect that he'll meet a lot of resistance from Israel, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia. Biden would call you later on and say, listen, I want to go back into the deal to negotiate the bigger deal. Nuclear weapons are the, are the paramount issue. You know, Everything else is important. We're going to cover missiles. So I guess my question is, in the context of your most recent column, has your view changed at all over the last year that that still going back to the old deal doesn't make sense? You know, What, what, yeah. what should Biden do from here, basically? Well, you know, it's like the policeman, you stop him to ask directions, you know, how do I get to the New York Times? And he says, well, you wouldn't start from here. Okay. <laughs> and you wouldn't start from here. You know, um, uh, I supported the Iran deal when it happened. I thought it was the best deal we could get. And keeping Iran away from bomb for 15 years and trying to reintegrate them seemed to me a legitimate bet by Obama. I didn't think it was perfect, but I, I, I thought it was a legitimate bet. Um, when, when Trump tore up the deal, Rich... I, I basically looked at that and said, man, I sure wouldn't have done that. But then I said, that was what I said in my first reaction. My second is, I wonder what they'll do. I mean, hey, maybe if he's 
can he somehow improve it? If you will, you know, if you read my reporting on Trump, anytime he's done something I thought was right, I supported it. You know, I mean, UAE deal, you know, most notably, you know, um, and I even supported him on things on China. So I was, I was just watching to see what they would do. He said, I wouldn't have done that, but maybe they've got a strategy. It turned out he had no strategy at all because the right strategy, and I, I argued this at the time, would have been to go to the Iranians, it seems to me, and say, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll lift the sanctions. We may even throw some sweeteners in, but we want to extend the deal to 25 years. Now, just imagine this. You're Trump, and you managed to get the Iranians, when I say 15 years, the deal basically keeps Iran one year away from a bomb for 15 years. That, that's the core of it. Imagine Trump had gone back to the Iranians, maybe threw in, thrown in some sweetener, and said, um, I got them to 25 years. That would have been a huge victory. By the way, that would have been a great thing for the region. And um, uh, I talked to Trump right before the election, and I asked him about this. And he said, Tom, as soon as I win again, I'll do a deal with Iran in 10 minutes. So he wanted to do one, but he didn't have the courage to do this. Instead, he let Pompeo put out this list of 10, 12 demands that basically weren't serious, that, that were not something Iran was going to do. And therefore, it was tantamount to no deal. And and that brought us to where we are right now. And so I, I thought it was just a giant strategic error that, that Bibi Netanyahu co-authored. And everyone knows now that the Israeli military was not comfortable with this, but all of them were really afraid to speak up after Bibi while Bibi was there. And now that after he's gone, you see everybody's coming out of the woodwork, uh, Boogie, um, the chief of staff, and all saying, we knew this was stupid, you know, and... Um, uh, yeah, you got to always be calibrating the balance of power. And, you know, when I grew up in Minnesota, there was a state fair. And I used to go as a kid, and there was a guy who could guess your weight. And if he got it within a few pounds, you know, I mean, he won. And if he didn't, you won a Cupid doll. I was amazed. How could that guy guess my weight? I, as a kid, I, the Iranians can guess your power from a thousand miles away. And, you know, you're dealing with people who've been around a long time. These are sophisticated players. And, and they didn't play this hand wisely at all. They played it for domestic consumption, right? The the counterfactual, right? Of of you know, had we not left the deal, we'd be better off right now. Can be countered with the other counterfactual, which is had Trump been reelected or had Biden continued maximum pressure, they would have folded by now, right? The IMF had says they had four billion dollars in accessible foreign exchange reserves coming into the year. Biden doesn't enforce any sanctions. Chinese imports go up. No IAEA resolutions. Doesn't respond at all to even a contractor being killed, et cetera, et cetera. So I, 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 I would no, no. I would, I would dispute one thing. We, the sanctions are still there. Yes, we have winked at as Trump did, um, China buying some oil. But um, they're still under the broad hammer of sanctions, though. To an extent. I mean, he's issued waivers to give them access to billions to repay foreign debts. hes I don't think he's cracked down on Chinese imports the way that they could have. The way We can dispute yeah. that. But but, but the, I think the question is, putting aside the what should we have done back in 2018, where would we have been at today? We are where we are today. Biden's where he's at today after 10 months of his own policy, right. you know, sort of playing out. The, the results of that policy, as you note, not good either. Yeah. What what does he do? Um, uh, I I really don't know. I'm I'm uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I think we're in a, just a terrible place. Right. Um, because uh, there is no support in America for going to war with Iran. 
um, at a time of uh, tight energy markets, just threatening that would spike oil and gas prices. That would really, at a time when the president's popularity is low. And at the same time, Iran now is basically three weeks away from, away from the, having enough fissile material um, to, uh, to make a warhead, although they're a couple of years away from a warhead. If you, I, so I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, this, I say this is not where I would have started. So uh, I, I have no magic bullet. Um, I, think, uh, I think where this is going, though, if you look at the history of Pakistan, North Korea, is Iran's going to be a threshold nuclear power. And um, Israel will deal with them through traditional deterrence, you know, a mutual assured destruction. But it feels to me like, as I look at all the factors, who has room to maneuver, who doesn't, that's where I think this is going. And I think that uh, Israel is very frustrated by this. You can see it in their actions, but if they had a smart answer for you, Rich, I would know it by now. And they don't either. Because a bombing is hugely complicated because Iran has dispersed all its facilities. So you're, it's not actually bombing. It's a war. You, it's a multi-day operation. And even then, maybe you set them back for a year and then Israel's isolated on the world stage. It's a hellish situation. And um, and the um, Northern Front response. Right. Most likely exactly. Lebanon, you yeah. get rockets all over. So I, I, don't, I don't have a smart answer. I, I wouldn't have started from here. Well, that is why we are watching the Israeli player in the poker right. game. We wanted to um, make sure we asked you, because you are one of the great thinkers about the region. Um, the Abraham Accords obviously have had a big impact. Uh, what do you think the region looks like in 10 years after these accords? How does it play out with uh, you know Saudi Arabia and any of the signatories and others who may not have come on board yet? Jared, I wouldn't make any predictions. I can just tell you what I would hope. And my hope is that the Middle East will look a lot more like the European Union than the Syrian civil war. That is, you know, more states uh, trading with each other and Israel. But I have my fears as well, and this gets to larger things I've written about. We're entering an era where it's actually become really hard to be a state. A lot of these states, this is because of economic pressures, technological pressures, climate pressures, population pressures, and a lot of states are just blowing up. And um, we've seen it in Lebanon, we've seen it in Syria, we've seen it somewhat in Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Libya. And these countries are too late for imperialism. I'm not advocating imperialism. I'm simply observing that they're too late for some outside power to come in and take control. And yet they failed at self-government. So from Israel's strategic perspective, its whole challenge is actually, other than Iran, it's actually managing weakness, not strength. Managing weakness, managing weakness among your neighbors, that's hell on wheels. Um, but if you look at what was the last wall Israel built, the last wall, it was an electric fence, is in the Negev to prevent basically Sudanese and Eritreans from walking to Israel to find an island of order. And so you're going to see the region cleave, I believe, between islands of order and islands of disorder. And what you're seeing right now is the islands of order all getting aligned with each other. Now, there's overlap. They're all Sunnis. There's the Iranian threat. But Iran is going to have that challenge as well. Let me just step back and give you the framework with which I look at the region today. So if I collect my columns you know, from 27 years now almost, and um, among my favorites will be a column I wrote on January 3rd, 2020. And um, I was in Auckland, New Zealand, and my editors called me um, at night. Um, and said, uh, Trump just assassinated Qasem Soleimani, the leader of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. You have to write a column. I say, guys, I'm in New Zealand. It's a long way away, and I'm on vacation. 
But I went to bed. I woke up, and being me, you know, it's like a piece of sand, you know, in the in the oyster. You know, I uh, opened my laptop, and I just typed the following sentence. I don't know where it came from. Um, this isn't verbatim, but it's pretty close. Trump just assassinated the dumbest man in Iran. Trump just assassinated the dumbest man in Iran. And I looked at that sentence and said, where, where did that come from? And here's where it came from. I was basically, it was my declaration of independence from a way of looking at the Middle East. I was basically saying to Soleimani, the late Soleimani, I'm not going to judge you the old way on the basis of your resistance to us or your resistance to the Sunnis. Um, I'm going to judge you on a whole new metric called resilience. What do I mean? I'm going to judge you in the actual context your country is living in. And if you don't know that context, let me spell it out to you. Your population has more than doubled since 1979, from 40 million to 85 million. Your biggest lake, the biggest lake in the Middle East, Urmia, has basically dried up. You have water riots in the south of your country. And what is your business model? Your business model is to go out and hire Arab Shiites to kill Arab Sunnis in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon and create failed states around you. You're the dumbest man in Iran because your people are never going to be able to realize their full potential. Now, I realize he's on another jag, but I'm taking him out of that. And what I'm basically saying is I think we need to judge leaders there on are you a resilience leader or are you a resistance leader? And what you see in MBZ in the UAE, what you see in uh, uh, Grand Prince Salman in Bahrain, what you see in the Moroccans, what you see in MBS, is these guys understand I better be a resilience leader in an age of climate change, population explosion, all of these things. I'm not just going to be play the old resistance game. I'm going to derive my legitimacy from the resilience I produce for my people and their ability to realize their full potential, not from the resistance I provide for my people. And I and to me, Suleimani's death was the was basically the demarcation line for me of covering the story one way and the other. I will tell you, I was inundated by emails and um, from Iranians saying thank you. Um, uh, and look, the Iranian this regime can go on uh, with resistance as long as it wants, um, but I think ultimately they're playing a losing hand. It's a great segue. You you, you brought up um, some of the other players and, and sort of this pivot to resilience. Uh, MBS in particular, Mohammed bin Salman, Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, the, the narrative for MBS for Saudi Arabia has ebbed and flowed, let's say, over the last couple of years. Where, where do you sit today on the future of Saudi Arabia, the future of MBS, and the future of Israeli-Saudi normalization? Well, you know, I start inside Saudi Arabia, Rich, you know, um, I have interviewed MBS twice. Uh, I wrote about him uh, positively. Uh, this is all before the Khashoggi murder. Um, and I have no regrets about that because MBS was the first Saudi leader trying to reverse 1979. Let's go back to where I started. What happened in 1979? At the Grand Mosque. Yeah. After the attack on, on the Grand Mosque, the Saudi regime, took the ruling family, took a giant right turn and took the whole Arab Muslim world with them into Wahhabism. And what started in 1979 ended on 9-11 in New York. Um, they basically took Sunni Islam on this puritanical fundamentalist right turn with all the money from the rising oil prices. That changed the face of the Arab and Muslim world in a really bad way, in my view, and the view of many Muslims. 
MBS was the first leader to come along to say, I'm going to reverse 1979 explicitly. And, and that is a fundamental strategic interest of the United States of America. We got involved in Iraq in part because of what happened in 1979. That was produced Al-Qaeda. And that was my argument with people. Um, and it's not to say, get over it, he just killed a guy. No, it's terrible what he did. It's incredibly, not just terrible, it's just incredibly stupid and venal, you know. Um, but we also have to understand, he, the only guy who would kill Khashoggi was also the only guy who would take the religious police off the streets, take on the, the religious establishment, let women drive, lift male guardianship. That's the dilemma. It's the Middle East, Jake. I wish... Thomas Jefferson was on the agenda and running all these countries. He's not, okay? And so we've got to find a way to work with Saudi Arabia to encourage this trend, which is a fundamental strategic interest of the United States, um, while at the same time not saying, oh, okay, you killed an American resident, a journalist, you know, whatever. So I don't know how we do that. But that is the balance we need to strike, because that is the fundamental interest, not only of the United States, of the whole Muslim world. It's only when Saudi Arabia changes that the whole Arab Muslim world changes. And none of his weenie cousins ever would have had the balls to do that. Um, and so, but unfortunately, he's got this other side. It's the Middle East, Jake. Okay, I, I wish everybody was a nice guy and they were all, you know, um, uh, you know, future Martin Luther's, but it's just not in, you work with what you got. And, and so we've got to find a way to work with Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, and, and if he's in charge of Saudi Arabia, to somehow work with him without giving him a pass uh, for what he did. And I don't know how to do that. But, you know, look, we work with Putin. How many journalists have been pushed out of windows in, in Moscow or Navalny in jail or Chinese... I mean, they got they got the half you know their entire Muslim population in re-education camps. So it's not an excuse. I'm not looking for excuses. What he did was terrible, but I'm saying it's it's the world we live in. To finish up, we usually ask our guests uh, a series of lighthearted questions to get a little bit more of a sense of who they are. So the first question in the lightning round today for you is: What is your favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Schwach. I use schwach a lot. <laughs> that's, that's really a good one. That's really that, schwach. <laughs> I think that's first. That's yeah. first for us. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah that is a I first. Like I use that too. My parents spoke Yiddish a lot to each other. You know, so um, uh, my parents spoke it so that we wouldn't know what they were talking. Right, exactly. About. Was, yeah. yeah, so we had to learn it with these yeah. like, little tapes. Right. And, and yeah. I, what I learned, what I learned, I never shared this on the podcast. Learning Yiddish by one of these like old cassette tapes. The first side of the tape is how to complain. Yes, right. It's like every, every exactly. it's all the phrases. Yes, right. It's like, oh my my foot. Yes, right. My foot hurts. Yes, right. My right. head. Right. My head hurts. That's right. Anyways, anyway, anyway. Hub there and bud. Hub there and bud. What is one new but obscure book that our listeners should have on their radar or maybe even on their bookshelf? I just read a fun book. Um, uh, you know, uh, twenty thirty four about a war between China and America. Um, uh, and Iran in 2034. So I, I would, um, uh, I, I can recommend that. All right. Favorite golf course to play? Oh, that's not even, that's just so easy. Cypress Point. Oh, not Caves Valley. I love Caves Valley, but but uh, it's Cypress Point. Finally, golf course you've always wanted to play, but haven't gotten there yet. None. Oh, wow. <laughs> when you're Tom Freeman, that's the answer. That's great. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I would Amazing. say Abandoned Dunes, but I, I've not played Abandoned Dunes yet, and I want to play that. So, 
Tom Friedman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Appreciate the time. Thanks so much, Tom. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. I mean, Rich, what an interview. I could have talked for two more hours with Tom Friedman. Uh, I always leave a conversation like that feeling totally inadequate uh, and like I need to read, you know, a thousand more books. Uh, he seems to have read everything and talked to everybody we want to hear from. But what, what do you think? Listen, we obviously disagree a little bit on the Iran deal and the exit, and damn, we're not going to spend a whole show on that. I think our, our listeners know my views on it. That's why I wanted to just sort of you know get to the, as we would say, the talk list of like, well, what are we going to do now? Right. Um, and and I, I just thought the conversation was excellent. Uh, his insights in the Middle East uh, remain excellent. His insights on Saudi Arabia, I thought, uh, are, are something that is a current topic of debate in Washington. And I think a lot of members of Congress need to to think about, the administration needs to think about on their way forward in navigating U.S.-Saudi relations and the potential for Saudi-Israeli normalization in the future could depend on the U.S.-Saudi relationship as well. And we got some golf course reviews, which is always a good thing. That's true. You know, I've, I've gone to the range a few times. I've never played a full 18 holes. Our, our listeners now, I think we just lost a bunch of golf listeners. I'm sorry. Jared, are you a golfer? Uh, sort of. But I think I we should probably record us playing golf one day. I think that would actually make for a phenomenal podcast if we just li- you know live recorded you and I out on the golf course talking about whatever comes to our mind and, and have that as an episode of the Limited Liability Podcast. We should, we should see if we could set something like that up. So long as nobody mentions what I'm actually doing when I hit the ball, I mean, I, I'll be fine with that. That's fine with me. <laughs> I'll right. just be in the cart with the drinking cart or something, and you know, we'll, we'll just we'll be fine. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends, because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Oh,